Thank you very much. Okay, morning, morning, everyone. Um, so uh, today, uh, today's this morning's lecture is going to be uh, the structure of capital markets. Uh, so over to Professor. Thank you, Sandeep. So I just want to remind you that in our study about the history, about the origin of interest, starts from the fact that there is a nature-given need for human beings to convert income into wealth, wealth into income, and then there is an optimization problem here, because the answer to that need is hoarding and is hoarding. So the optimization problem is to find the best material which can be hoarded and distorted. And best means least losses, the smallest possible losses. And we discussed that the solution of the problem comes through the concept of marketability. Menger's original idea, but we, we made a refinement. We split the concept into marketability in the large, mar marketability in the small. The first one is also called saleability, and uh, the other is called affordability and uh, with the aid of this we found the most marketable commodity in the small and that is silver. So well to some extent you might say gold but you know we, this is a schematic thing we are not worried about the small details, by and large, it is fair to say that historically silver was the one which was hoarded, and this is especially clear in China. Most recently I had the occasion of studying a little bit of the Chinese monetary system going back to antiquity, and uh, I found some fascinating things which unfortunately don't have time to share with you, but there is a reason why silver 
was so prominent in China and gold was less prominent. They did have gold and they used gold, but uh, it was never nearly as prominent in China until today, I might say. Because <laughs> the Chinese are very smart. And they started buying gold and the communist government recommends it to the citizens to buy gold. I mean, in all previous communist governments, confiscated the gold of individual uh, citizens, but now, so I, I would say China has come around, but historically, silver was the money. They had uh, a very funny uh, coin, it's not, it wasn't even coin. It, it looked like a shoe, a small, very small shoe. You know the Chinese tradition of uh, disfiguring the uh, feet of female infants. And this was a point of honor to have this, uh, I mean all the high class Chinese girl had this figured feet because they were so dainty that they uh, didn't even uh, have to walk from one room to the other because there were servants who would take them and only uh, girls of low uh, origin uh, had their feet untouched, which is interesting. Now, of course, the Chinese communists, when they formed their first government in 1914, to their credit, we can say, they uh, outlawed this practice of disfiguring the feet of female infants. But, of course, on pictures, and, and in particular in this instance, this uh, unit of uh, money, silver money, had the shape. Uh, there are two uh, similarities which uh, you can use. One is uh, compare this perhaps of this size, this would be fair to say, uh, silver, and it would open here, it would be open here. So it's really like a, a shoe, a small shoe, made of silver. It had a name too, but it slipped my mind. And it's not important for our purposes here. Uh, but uh, some other people would compare this to a boat, okay, this uh, silver. So it's very curious, over centuries or even thousands of years, 
the Chinese unit of account was this uh, uh, shoe-like silver object. <clears throat> now, there was no standard weight. It was just approximate, so at every exchange they had to weigh it. It's very complicated, but uh, anyhow, this is what happened. Now, I started out by saying that the reason the Chinese uh, used silver was because silver was the instrument of hoarding. And this is very important because the exchange of income and wealth was really subordinate. The, most of the saving was done within the family community. Now this is true in the West as well, but very often, or very soon, the uh, exchange uh, took over simply because of the greater efficiency. But in China, this process was much slower, and as a result, uh, silver was the prominent uh, metal, monetary metal, not gold, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, so we started out with this, the first optimization problem is to pick the monetary metal. But once this was done, the, the question arose, can further improvement be made? And the answer is yes. Just pass from the direct conversion of income into wealth and wealth into income to indirect conversion. And what is indirect conversion? Exchange. Exchange. And uh, this is, as I explained, uh, quite parallel to Menger's story. In fact, I consciously imitated Menger perhaps word for word, if possible. It wasn't possible everywhere, but I tried. And I think I succeeded. So, Menger's theory, the origin of money, and he explains it in terms of marketability in the large, or saleability. And the result is the monetary metal gold. And the parallel story of the origin of interest, which we are doing here in this uh, course. And uh, the, uh, the tool is the marketability in the small or hoardability. And it culminates with the monetary metal, silver. And now we ask the question, what about further improvement in efficiency? And the answer is exchange. Now the same in Menger's theory, 
the improvement is the uh, when you consider uh, money, it's the uh, the uh, exchange. The, uh, in this case, it's the uh, the uh, indirect exchange. The, starts with direct exchange, that's barter, and when the money becomes, the gold money becomes widely available, then it is the indirect exchange, which is uh, exchanging goods and services for money. So that's just a short review of what we have been doing. And now the next question is how interest comes into existence. And there is a very simple theory which very strangely to my mind survived to this day which is very inadequate but it's the diagonal model. Okay, so we have two poles Okay, one is the uh, providers of loanable or suppliers of loanable funds and the other is the user of loanable funds. So, okay. Thank you. So they they make the exchange and then uh, through their bargaining they arrive at a rate of interest and that's it. So this is a model of the capital markets but very very inadequate. Very inadequate. It doesn't explain anything and it ignores uh, most of the uh, important ingredients which should go into that theory. So we are going to discard this. But as I just suggested, it's amazing that if you buy an introductory textbook on economics, you will find that model as if this explained anything. The, origin of interest and the, how the level of interest is achieved. As if you were describing the, uh, the grain market or some other market. It's, it's completely inadequate in my opinion. It's just plain wrong. So we are going to replace this model with an improved version, don't get up because I just describe it uh, in a few steps and then we'll, we'll write it down. So the first improvement on the diagonal model 
will be the square model with four points. And I tell you why four. Because here there is supply and demand, so that gives you the two poles. But now we are going to ask for this uh, further refinement that uh, we want to look at the the uh, person who is supplying the the wealth and the person uh, who is uh, supplying the income, this will be an exchange. And now we say, okay, as far as the wealth is concerned, we have supply and demand. And as far as income is concerned, we have supply and demand. So that's how the two becomes four. Okay? We, on the wealth part, we split it into supply and demand, and income part the same way. So that's four poles. And then we exploit this. And there's so much to say about that. But it's not the end, because we shall see the reasons why the four poles are still not sufficient to describe the uh, structure of the capital market in a, in a satisfactory way. So we'll need a fifth and that's very critical. This fifth participant will, will, have, will give names to all these, but I just mentioned this fifth one is the capitalist, okay, who can exchange present goods for future goods. We'll come to that. And that gives you the pentagonal model of the capital market, which is still an improvement. And even that is not the end, because, and that's where we'll stop, introduce a sixth and final participant, and a hexagonal model with six poles. And the last participant, uh, protagonist in this model of the capital markets, we'll see, is the investment banker. Well, that's just a bird's eye view. So now I go to the details. So please uh, turn the...
flip chart. The nice square with four. And now we want to name the participants. <clears throat> when it comes to wealth, uh, the chief supplier of wealth to the capital market is what we call annuitand. With a, sorry, with a T at the end. Now, the word annuity is synonymous with pension. So here's somebody in the, his harvest years who uh, has the wealth and he, is, he needs income. Okay, so he, we look at as a supplier of wealth. Now underneath we'll enter the annuitant with a D. He is typically a young man who is uh, uh, who wants a pension eventually when when he ret uh, retires, and therefore he is saving, and this saving we describe as. Uh, an income which he's converting into wealth. So we look at uh, this fellow as supplier of income. So here is the wealth. Here is the uh, supply side. Side. And now we go to the demand side. The demand for um, wealth and the demand for income. So let's up there in the upper right point enter the entrepreneur. who represents the demand for wealth. Because he needs capital to set up his business. So the entrepreneur is looking for somebody who can supply the wealth for him. And then, finally, we have the, let's call him the inventor. Who has a need for income, so demand 
Well, the, uh, I prefer to use the same word as we used up there. So demand for income okay. instead of need. Well, it's the same thing, but I, I just want to keep it as symmetric as possible. Now, please sit down and then just, we, I'd like to talk to you about this, okay. all right? So, uh, we are talking about the structure of the capital market and the various uh, parts, supply, demand, wealth, and income. So these are the four corners. Now, it's uh, various combinations can be set up. If we, uh, first let's discuss the horizontal pairs, okay? Uh, is it clear that they are complementary, that the annuitant has the wealth and he wants to put this wealth to a, a, a good use? He doesn't need it immediately. He's uh, just uh, to, he's trying to convert it into income. Now, on the other hand, the entrepreneur needs wealth, needs capital. So, is it clear that the two are complementary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the entrepreneur, when he set up his business, he will have an income, part of which he can use to give to the annuitant. And, and, and this is a very uh, symbiotic relation which is uh, solving their problems. Now let's look at the lower horizontal pair. Here's the annuitant who is putting aside a part of his income for an annuity which will pay his pension. Okay? Now the inventor. This is the uh, thing where we have to say a little bit. Now, what is an inventor doing in the abstract? Well, he is, this inventor is meant in a very broad sense, not a narrow sense, very broad sense. He may not be inventor in the conventional sense, but he is working maybe on a process of improving the use of some gadget and uh, this will take time and he has to support himself during that period of time before he can come out with his uh, improved process. Can you think of an example of this? Propeller to jet engine. Okay, let's try. Flying has been going on, but first with a propeller engine. And then there are various 
criticisms about the propeller engine not efficient enough or can be improved and then the inventor invents the jet engine. <coughs> but to make this transition is not overnight. It's not like, oh gee, jet engine and then tomorrow you start flying with a jet engine. No, it takes several years. So this fellow, invent we call him an inventor, is going to uh, work on that. And somebody has to pay uh, his sustenance and also uh, the expense which he incurs in his workshop. You see? So he needs income and the wealth he will produce is in the future, okay? Because uh, they are just hoping at that stage that there will be positive results of this invention and, uh, and that we describe as future wealth. Okay. So, the wealth in the upper horizontal pair is present wealth. And the wealth we are talking about, this should be put down somehow. Uh, so, The partnership, if they form a partnership up there, represents present wealth. And down there, it represents, the partnership represents future wealth and also represents income. 